hearts for that. This morning, I just want to, I feel compelled just to pray for some members of our church um, who are just, you know, facing some pretty difficult times right now. And so I would just pray for these things and to the degree that you're involved or know these folks, I encourage you to reach out to them this morning. We, we specifically, it comes to my mind right now, and forgive me if others don't, but we want to pray for our, our sister Deborah. She's laying her father to rest tomorrow and uh, Tuesday, and they're down in uh, Mississippi uh, attending to that. And, um, and also praying for our, our sister Faith Freeze, who's, you know, they're waiting on Aiden, some care for Aiden, so we want to pray for her as well specifically this morning. So, um, and there's some other things we'll pray for as we go along, okay? Let's join us. Just join me in prayer. Father, this morning, uh, we just want to turn to you and just cry out, Lord, our longing of what we just sang. Um, come, Lord Jesus, as your bride, we're waiting for you, Jesus, to come, take your church home. But until then, God, help us to be faithful and by faith live and trust you in the work you called us to do. And one of, that, one of the aspects of that work is to care for one another and to, to, to support one another and to... In, in various ways, Lord, and so this morning we want to pray for some members in our church who are, um, who are just in very, we're facing some difficult and struggles this morning. We, we pray for Deborah and uh, Dustin this morning. Deborah lost her father this past week, um, and so they'll be laying him the rest this coming Tuesday. And, uh, you know, just that process of losing, losing a parent, I'm sure is its own thing from based on some conversations I know she's had with some folks here. We thank you for the, the members of this church who just have done so, been so faithful to come alongside her and encourage her and stay connected to her over the past few weeks as they've um, <clears throat> watched her father um, leave this earth and into eternity. Thank you for those who will be there with her in, pre in person this week. We know there are a few that will be driving down and to support Lord, so we're thankful for that. And so, God, just give her courage, give her encouragement, give her time to reflect and to consider all these things through the lenses of the great hope she has in Jesus. And uh, we pray that Dustin will be able to bring good help and, and, and support as well to her during these days. And as they grieve, let them grieve well, but not grieve, with people, grieve as people without hope, um, because their hope is greater than, um, the, 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 for those who are in Christ, temporary death. Um, we will experience a great resurrection in the end um, when Jesus returns and, and finishes this whole thing and, and, and puts, to, to, puts to death. He has already put to death death finally, but Lord, one day there will be a day when we're longing for that to be true and everything that is untrue, as, as Casey said earlier, will become true and gloriously so. Father, we pray for the freezes, Lord, as they, they're just in this season right now trying to care for their oldest son. And we just pray that you just give them courage, wisdom, give doctors wisdom on how to care for him, and we just pray for faith as she's there with her, with him this morning, and we just ask that you would just um, give them strength and courage, and, 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 and Father, again, answers to what they need in the days to come. Uh, Father, this morning, um, we also just pray for other things in our, in our church. So we pray for this ministry to the Stewartsburg Elementary, to God, that that would, re that would reap fruit um, in ways that we cannot see over the course of the next few months, or even years, perhaps. We also pray, God, for marriages in this church, something we pray for often, that you'd strengthen them. And for those marriages that are struggling right now, God, would you bring a, 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 a burst of your Spirit's power and presence into their lives and bring about renewal and repentance where needed. And Father, for those who are struggling, not seeing and not understanding where to see because it's, life just feels dark, God, would you just help them see the light of the gospel and, help the, and may the church come alongside them to help them see that in these days. Father, we love you. 
We ask for you to be with us now as we turn our attention to the word this morning and let us see and hear from it, be encouraged by it, but also be challenged by it. And Father, where need it, act according to it. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Church, I'm going to ask you to stand again as we read God's word together from 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 13 through 22 this morning there in chapter 3. Let's hear the word of the Lord, yea. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Important question. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because he, they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited, on them and waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from, of dirt from your body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, again, peace be with you, church, this morning as we... Man, we're rounding third in our study. If you're a baseball analogy, if you're not into baseball, it's okay. Uh, we're getting close to the end is really the essence there. We're getting close to the end of our study. One more month, this, this and four more weeks, and then we will begin our study in Ezekiel, which will be a really fun series I'm looking forward to. Difficult series, but I think it's going to be a fun study for us as a church, this, uh, an important study for us, our church, this fall. But today we, we see a transition in Peter's text We've been in this space where Peter's been talking about the Christian and related to the world and how we're to operate in the world and how we're to operate in the spheres that are common to man. Um, and then he puts his final words on it last week. But he, he says something in the text there, um, in our text from last week, and, talks, and, he, and, he, and he points to this suffering. He only notes it quickly, but then now this week we're going to begin to transition into that topic of suffering. And we're going to do this for the next three weeks because we're going to look at the next chapter and a half, and we're going to begin to ask ourselves, what is the role of suffering in the Christian life? And what we're going to find in these next three weeks are three things. I'm just going to give them to you up front so you know what to look for and look expect over the next few weeks. One is, how do we hold on to our zeal in the face of suffering? Which is what we're going to cover today. And then next week, we're going to talk about how to press on in our sanctification from sin while suffering we'll look at next week. And then the week after that, we will look at how to rejoice. That's right, rejoice in our suffering. So we'll see those three things unpacked over the next three weeks. So today we're going to be talking about how to hold on to our zeal in the face of suffering. Now, it's not hard 
to take a good look around, around us in the world, zeal is not hard to find, right? You can look around in your life, you can look around in the lives of your neighbors, you can look around and watch television, you can watch anything, and you can find a, a, a many examples of, of zeal, right? We all have zeal for various things, right? Um, they they could be zeal for, obviously, the, the, the current cultural climate has parties on both sides that have great zeal for their positions, amen? They have great zeal about their political debates. We have people who are zealous about their traditions, right? Like, I grew up in the greatest town ever, right? Maybe you're that person, right? Um, you know, like, you, you were born in Tennessee by the grace of God, right? I mean, that's, some of you folks may feel that way. Most of us in here didn't grow up in Tennessee, so that's interesting, right? But uh, I've, I feel like Virginia is one of the greatest states ever because I tell my wife all the time it's the state that begat all others. Um, but, uh, you know, so uh, it is, it's a commonwealth. So, you know, it's a commonwealth to everyone else, right? Um, but, yes, zealous for our traditions, our hometowns, our states, whatever. We are zealous for our favorite athlete, athletes and sports teams, right, favorite colleges, professional sports, whatever that may be. Um, families, we're zealous for our families, our marriages, perhaps. Children, some of us probably are way too involved, <laughs> way too zealous for our children. We live vicariously through them. That can be a slight thing from time to time. Some of us are just zealous about our jobs, our careers, our financial gains, our financial stability. It can be, we can be zealous for a lot of things, and zeal's not a problem. Like, zeal's not, like, evil. It's not wrong. We can be, and in fact, we can have a certain amount of uh, relative zeal for these things in their appropriate way. But the question that we want to talk about as a Christian is, what is the source of true, what should be the source of our, of our zeal as believers? What does it mean for us to be zealous for godliness? What does it mean for us to be zealous for the things of God, for, for God himself, for Jesus, the Son, what does it mean for us to be zealous? Is a Christian to be zealous in that way? And should it be, is it, is it something that should be greater than the things we find zeal for in other areas of our lives? The Apostle Peter shows us, I think, today in this text what it looks like for us to have zeal for righteousness and that, it, that this zeal is so vital, actually. It's actually a vital component of our Christian life. Not, not a zeal that we're self-producing, not a zeal that we're trying to kind of stir up in our own selves, but a zeal that, that is evident through the fact that we've had, we have a real transformative relationship with Jesus Christ and the Spirit goes to work inside of us. That's the kind of zeal uh, Peter would like for the church to, to see in, 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 in their lives. Again, not something we can do. Why? Because we have an all-sufficient Savior. I mean, like, if you have a Savior who can come into your need at any given moment, and he can meet that need, no questions asked, is there anything else in your life that you could be more zealous for? And the answer, of course, is not. No, right? I mean, no matter how much we love these other things, they will never ultimately satisfy because ultimately one of our teams is going to, it's going to lose, Right? We're ultimately going to face challenges in our marriages and in our parenting. We're ultimately going to find challenges in our, in our political struggles and, 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 and hopes. We're going to have that. They can't satisfy, but there's a zeal that we should have from the, in the Lord and in his righteousness and in his, in godliness because we know we have an all-sufficient Savior that should drive everything about us. Amen? It's what it should do for us. And so this morning, here's my main sermon summary, and then we're going to build everything back to this. I like to reverse engineer. That's how I do things in preaching. That our zeal for doing good 
cannot be extinguished by the suffering we face because we are vindicated by Jesus. Simple thought, but man, when we unpack it, you find this to be like a cornerstone of our lives. Our zeal for doing good cannot be extinguished for suffering, by suffering, excuse me, but because we are vindicated by Jesus. We're going to look at two major points this morning. One is the challenge that we face in regards to our zeal, godly zeal, and in the end, the vindication we have in our zeal when we are in Christ. So let's look at that first point. The challenge that we face for godly zeal. We find this primarily in verses 13 through 17. I won't reread it. We'll just kind of take it piece by piece as we go through here. But in verses 13 through 14, we find the initial idea. There's a challenge that the Christian faces. There's this, there's this question, right? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good? Like Peter, Peter's posing a question to this church. And, this, and it's probably a very important question. We don't know why it's there, but it's certainly a question that Peter felt like he needed to address. Why? Probably because the church was probably, was probably asking this question. Like, we, we want to be zealous, Peter. We want to be found faithful. But every time we get, we're faithful, man, we get punched in the mouth. We face persecutions. We face resistance. We face suffering. And, and, and so the question will naturally arise, and maybe said another way, is, is it really worth it? Is Christ really worth it? Is a zealousness for Christ really worth it if at the end of the day it just means that I can only expect going forward just pain and misery and suffering in this life? It's a question that we all have. Now listen, I'm going to be honest with you. We probably struggle with that question because we don't really, now we see some of it, but we don't know this like other believers across other believers. And, I, and that's not to say that we should you know, always be you know, you know, smacking our own hands and say, oh, well, soft Christian. But it's, but it's just a reality. Is we may not resonate with this because we haven't, maybe in some ways we haven't really faced that kind of like, heart-searching question. Is it really worth it? Is zeal for Jesus really worth it? How can we continue to do good and pursue righteousness, you might think? If we face such hostility as Christians everywhere we turn. Look at verse 16. This is, I'm sorry, it says there in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. In other words, he's assuming, he's not saying that you won't, he's saying he's assuming you will suffer. And in his mind, he has suffering, has the locus in what we find in verse 16, that slander that we receive, that slander we receive from the unbelievers. Those who revile our good behavior, it says there, right? To slander, of course, is to accuse. You, you've got, you got the group that's always accusing you of being the, the, the weirdos, right? The, 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 the wackadoodles, whatever you want to say right there. They, they're always out there going, they're always trying to, you know, make you seem like you're the ones who are out of step. And, and look, let's be honest with you. We are. It's okay to actually embrace that. Those who revile you, the word is disparage. So in other words, when they disparage you, they're, they're not being true about who you are. Like, that's why it's so important for Christians to always tell the truth, even among our in, you know, towards our enemies, about our enemies. Because our enemies are way too quick to not do that with us. To disparage us and, and really, honestly, say half-truths about what we believe and what we are uh, about. The first-generation church experienced slander and reviling constantly. They were considered somewhat of a Jewish cult, as it were. And so here we are, they would see these Christians running around, they're spreading into Greco-Roman territories, 
And they're going, wow, I mean, these people are fascinated with a dead man, aren't they? These people are they're fascinated with his human sacrifice. What's that all about? And most notably, they have it in their, like, one of the things that they do each Sunday, and yes, they did it every Sunday like we do here, they do this meal, and they say this meal is they're actually eating Christ's body, and they're drinking his blood. Like, that's, that seems odd to me. And so this is, so, so all the pagans out there, all these other people who worshiped all these other gods were going, um, something's not right about that. And so they experience this constantly. Now, you and I both know that these slanderous accusations, are, they don't have any merit. Like when We are not literally eating flesh and blood here at, in the church. But we do take a meal that represents the fact that we identify with the flesh and blood of Jesus, the one that was sacrificed on our behalf, and it is to memorialize the church as saying, I, I stand in that. That is, I benefit from that. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. That's why we take it every week. You and I benefit from that, and we should celebrate that. And so we then say, okay, well, yeah, we get that because we may not necessarily experience that kind of persecution, but we do experience slander or accusations today, right? We see it everywhere. The abortion debate's all hot and heavy right now uh, with a new ruling from, our, from the Supreme Court. And so then naturally there's a lot of slander and reviling there, right, to disparage that and say what's not really what we believe. We, they'll say things like, you don't care about women, you're just trying to repress women. You don't really want their good. And listen, anyone who's done even a rudimentary study about Christianity knows that's not even remotely true. No world religion has ever done more for women than Christianity. Full stop. But we can get in, kind of feel sometimes we're being put in a corner, right? By those kinds of things. It's just not true. You will hear Christians say, you know, they'll, hear that, they'll say, well, Christians, man, they, they just want to use politics to enforce their moral code onto us. And, and this moral code on us is something they're trying to do um, to, to, to control us. And their morality is just arbitrary things that they've created for themselves. So an example, of course, is the, the new you know, sexual morals of the day, right? They'll say, well, your biblical sexual ethics and your gender identities, these are, they're teaching norms like, you know, man, they just kind of lump you into what? Flat earther kind of kookiness, right? I'm sorry if you're a flat earther. We can have a conversation later. Um, but uh, if you are, we can have a, it's seriously, we need to have a talk. Um, but, but uh, sorry. But listen, every society, Christian or not, has always, has always regarded the, the sexual norms and gender norms, regardless if it was ever impacted by Christianity ever. Like, why is that? Because there's something natural law says about how life works. You don't have to, yes, we can look at, we can look at the Bible and we should, and that should be our supreme source because there's way more to it than this, but we can look at just the natural order of things and we say, this seems to be how things work best. And so we have all these tensions that we face, these norms um, that, that, that are being, de, you know, if you want to say, deconstructed in our world today. And so it shouldn't be a surprise for us as Christians when we face these things, you know, even if we disagree on certain details about these things from time to time, that we're going to face challenges for our godliness. We're going to, chase, uh, we're going to, we're going to face challenges for truth-telling. And we're going to look more about that over the next couple of weeks about 
you know, how, how do we, how, how do we, what do we do in the midst of these suffering? Because that, that'll come in two weeks from now. But what I think what's most important to Peter this morning in this specific way in which he launches into suffering is that the biggest crisis you face in suffering is how you maintain your zeal for Jesus. It's not going to be what you suffer per se. It's whether or not you will maintain, you will see and continue to see a, a, a passion and, a, and, a, and, a, and an affection for Jesus continue to grow in your life in the face of all the trials and hostility that you will face. And so then Peter then gives us here in verses 15 through 17 kind of this three-legged stool, if you will, uh, on how to maintain our holy zeal for the Lord. And, he, and I'm going to give you the three real quick. I think from the very beginning, this is how I'm going to phrase it. One, we need to attend to proper worship of Jesus, honor Jesus, the Lord is holy. Um, we must be prepared to defend our hope. And then two, we must do this. We must, we must, we must do this. We must relate to others who revile us with gentleness and respect. So let's talk about those three things briefly. We must attend, it says, I believe, to proper role of worship in our life. To honor Christ as Lord, uh, as, as holy, what that is in pointing us to is that we recognize that Jesus is all of our worship. And it's not, you know, but it, just Jesus, we're talking about also the second member of the Trinity. It's Trinitarian worship. Like, you and I should not sing songs that are so light and flimsy that any other religion could say the same and sing the same things. Our worship is Trinitarian worship. If you listen to other lyrics of our song, they're always about Jesus and his accomplishments. They're talking about the triune God. This is what we seek to do at Grace Church. It's why we believe the Lord's Day and how we worship and the things we do here are extremely important. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, the Lord as holy. Now, when he says in your hearts, let me just make sure I clear something up here. In your hearts is not code for worship God existentially the way you want to worship God. That's where the world would render that, right? They would say, well, you've got to determine individualistically how you worship the true one true living God. And actually, that's not true at all. No, rather... He's saying your hearts must be ready to receive the, 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 the call to worship God the way God calls us to worship him. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, prepare to receive Christ as he is and the way he should be worshipped. That should be the, where you're preparing your heart. You are not free to worship. I am not free to worship God in any way I want to worship him. Now, we can get into a lot of debates, and there's Christians love to have this debate. But friends, if our worship, or the way and styles we employ in worship, do nothing more than tickle the emotions, and they don't drive us to a full, a full embrace of the fullness of who Jesus is, we have failed in Christian worship. Now, we can have a lot of room, if you will, some room in there, but what that means, of course. I'm not saying that we don't, that it's so narrow, but I do believe it's important. There's a great book that I would recommend to you to read. If you really like, want to know more about Christian worship, Trinitarian-shaped worship, there's a book that I read about a year and two ago, something like that, called, um, it's called, uh, oh, shoot, where is it at? I just, it, I've lost it on my page here. What Happens When We Worship? By a guy named Jonathan Cruz from Michigan. Fantastic read. 
help me, things that I was wrestling with and how things that we've been on this journey here to think through our worship here, grace, and how we do our corporate worship. It was so important for me because it really helped me put the proper categories around worship and, and really think through this biblically and theologically because I don't think we think, I don't think the modern evangelical church even remotely thinks about theology in our worship anymore. They think about what tickles our ears, what makes you feel the best, what, what, makes, me, what makes me feel nostalgic. It doesn't matter if you're traditional, it doesn't matter if you're contemporary. When those are the questions we're trying to answer, we're, answer, we're trying to answer the wrong questions, right? So I commend that to you. If you, if you want to see me afterwards, I can, I can give you a, send you a link or something. I think every Christian should read this book, by the way. It's not a very big book. It's just, it'll, it'll help you understand why we do what we do here. It'll, I think it'll help you engage better. But we honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. The Lord means our affections esteem, esteem Christ above all things. Christ is Lord over all of our life. There is no other Lord over our life, and there will never should be any other Lord over the Christian's life. Christ is indeed Lord over all things, but he should always be preeminently Lord over every Christian's life. Christ is the holy second person of the Trinity. We don't, get to, we don't get to even isolate him from God the Father and God the Spirit. They work, in, they work together. All the work of salvation is the work of the triune God. All of this points us towards the central importance of worship for the believer. We should take our worship seriously. Second London Confession. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from our confession here. Chapter 22. This is a modern, English, modern version, a modern English version of it, so it won't be so old language, but here we go. The light of nature demonstrates that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is just and good and does good to everyone. Therefore, he should be feared, loved, and praised, called on, trusted, and served with all the heart and soul and all, our, all the heart and all the soul and all the strength. Excuse me. But the acceptable way to worship true God is instituted by him. This is one of the confessions that people who are much older, much wiser, and spend a lot more time thinking about this. They recognize our worship is something that God institutes by himself. And it is... It is um, uh, it is limited by his own revealed will. Excuse me. Thus, he may not be worshipped according to human imagination or inventions or suggestions of Satan, nor through any visible representations, nor in any other way that is not prescribed in Holy Scripture. This is part of our confession. It's what Baptists have believed. But not just Baptists. By the way, this is like the Presbyterians. We just basically ripped off the Presbyterians with the Westminster Confession. That's all we did, except we said, hey, we believe in believer's baptism, and we believe in covenants a little differently. That's basically what the difference. Okay? We were not originalists here. <laughs> we just realized they said something really good, and we agree with that, except for one, a couple of places. But in, chapter, in paragraph 2, religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures since the fall uh, worship is not to be given without a mediator, nor through any mediation other than that of Christ alone. Christ is the mediator of our um, worship. And then verse, in, in paragraph 5, the elements of religious worship include the reading of scriptures, the preaching and hearing of the word of God, 
teaching, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as well as the administration of baptism, the Lord's Supper. We must be performed out of obedience to Him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Also, purposeful acts of humbling with fasting in times of thanksgiving should be observed on special occasions in a holy and religious manner. It is to be under the gospel, neither prayer nor any other religious worship now is restricted to or more, may more accept one place where it is done, but God is worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, daily in each family, privately by each individual, but most solemnly, most formally, in formal corporate worship is to be formed in public assemblies on the Lord's day. I'll just stop there. The point we're trying to say here is that when Peter says we are going to have maintain a zeal for the Lord, you have got to believe that the Christian worship has to be like numero uno. And when the church puts the priority, the primacy of Christian worship, public worship, gathered Lord's Day worship, in addition to our own private and family worships through training our kids in catechisms and whatever else on other, other days of the week, but most solemnly on the Lord's Day, we can be assured that our zeal will increase and continue to be maintained in the face of suffering. We must be prepared, then, number two, to defend our hope. That's what he says there later on. He says... Um, Always be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason of hope that exists in you, that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Being prepared there, of course, means to make a defense, which means what? An apology, right? An apologetic. Be ready. Be ready. Don't apologize. Now, we think apology and we think, well, I'm just, I'm apologizing for something I did wrong. No, actually, apology is, it comes, that's where we get apologetics from, is to give it a defense, and so we give a defense for the gospel. We are ready in day in and day out. We are ready to share why, what the gospel is and why we believe it. This is what we must prepare ourselves for. Parents, why? We catechize. Why? Because we want our kids to know these things. I even convicted now that in our busyness, sometimes those things are not nearly uh, as consistent as they should be. So I don't point my fingers at anyone. But let me just say this. Friends, and let me just, and, and, and this, here's, the, here's the part where it's going to get a little heavy. If our Bibles sit on our countertops, dressers, unopened because we're too busy to simply open up for a few minutes each day, then don't be surprised. I'm saying this to myself as much as anyone else. When we have doubts, when people ask us about our faith. Don't be surprised when we don't know how to talk and engage in the new sexual morality of the day and be able to give it a good biblical defense for that. Don't be surprised when many Christians don't know how to discern matters of such things um, that are such critical concern for us because we don't open our Bibles, we don't read good, good writers about the Bible, we just won't spend the time doing it because we'd rather be binging, what, our favorite episodes on whatever else or have our nose in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a device of some sort. And I'm not saying this to any one person. I'm saying this to myself as much as anyone. I'm saying this to be that, that I would pray that the Lord would, through the work of the Spirit, would convict us of these things. Because if we are going to be prepared to maintain our zeal, it's going to have to be in the, and one aspect of this has to be in the way we train ourselves. Read God's Word. Parents, read it with your children. Catechize them. Get them into the old stuff. They can handle it. But we don't mind kids being in service. They can handle it. You can handle it, by the way, parents. I know parents sometimes like, oh, I don't know if I can handle this. No, you can handle it. 
You'll get through this, I promise you. And then you'll miss it one day too. You will. Now we give a defense. We're ready to tell the truth. Not truth as we see it, but truth as God has revealed it. Like if our truth never arises above me and my concerns, then what will happen in my life and in your life will be that we'll be to set a sail in a sea of moral and ethical confusion and ambiguity, will we not? That's what we that's all we'll have hope for. But no, we must constantly be trained in the truth of God's word and what God has revealed. And it says to give this to anyone who asks you the hope that you have in you. Anyone, anyone want to guess what that means? Anyone, right? Like anyone, that, like, yes, there will be people you'll meet that will be genuinely interested in your faith. They won't be combative. It'd be glorious if that was all the people we meet, but it's not. Anyone has to also include the combative, the antagonistic folks out there. It also means it must mean that we defend our faith for those who've made a shipwreck of their life. They don't know where to turn. They need your confidence in the scriptures to lead them back to wholeness from where the decisions they've made probably going up to this point. Look, friends, look, the reality is, and look, the statistics tell us the truth on this. And again, I'm not, this, this is not politics. This is just real. The facts are to tell us this, is that you know, the vast majority of women who have, who have experienced an abortion have long-lasting psychological and emotional struggles. And it's clear in our world today, our world doesn't know how to deal with that. That's just true. Go into any, I mean, we have pub, several public school folks here, especially those who've worked in special education, they will tell you, we don't know what to do with some of these things. We just have a world that doesn't have answers to this. And it's not easy for the Christian either, but the facts are, we know that some of these things do relate back to the fact that there's just a world that's clouded by so much sin. It just is. They also tell us, to bring it into a more modern discussion, there's always this debate now, of course, there's lots of push now in certain states to allow children at very young ages to transition their bodies from one gender to the next. Y'all have heard this? I'm not going to go on a diatribe here. But if our culture is not sick, I don't know what it is. And again, this is not to be harsh by any straight imagination. But here's the deal is we now have people who went through those transitions who are coming out going, stop Stop the bus. Don't do this. Don't, don't let these children do this. People who went through that transition, they've experienced the physical and emotional and psychological pain from those things because it didn't fix the inner person that they wanted to fix. Anyone. Friends, what are we going to do when that comes to the door of this church? Let me ask you this. Perhaps there's someone in this church right now that, that has. They just are too ashamed to say, I, I gave up a child. I, I work with a person very dear to me who has done that, and God has used it to redeem and bring her into a very whole place. And I love her testimony. I wish you could see, hear it someday. But not many people get that kind of freedom because of the way we talk about it. Same thing is, well, what happens when when, when we have the same-sex couple comes in our church who realize something ain't right, that this isn't as satisfying as I thought it was, and they come into the church and they, and they, and they start just visiting, and well, how are we going to handle that? 
Let's just back it up from the church. How about how are you going to handle that when you're at soccer practice and little Danny has a teammate who's got two moms or two dads? And if you think that's not true, uh, think again. It's right here in Smyrna and Murfreesboro just as much as anywhere else. How is a church going to be take the gospel and be a defense to anyone if we're not ready for it? We've got to be ready for this, church. We're not called to just hide out. There's no such thing as a church that is called or expected to be retreatists from the world. Now, we can, we can have all these things, but we've got to make sure we're ready in day, in season, and out of season to these things. These anyones need mercy. These anyones need gentleness and respect, as Peter says. Why do you think Peter is telling us this message? Because Peter was the opposite of this when Jesus' ministry and Jesus corrected him on this time and time again. And it took a lot of years to get this kind of cooked out of his system, right? And he's telling the church, yeah, you, you're facing some really harsh realities. But the anyone's need the gospel, and they need your defense of the gospel, and they need you to be ready in season and out of season with respect and gentleness and care, and be willing to long suffer with them and walk with them and be patient with them not looking down on them, trying to understand the questions that have lied behind their story so that you can help see and understand them better so that you can then bring the gospel into that story. What's going to happen when that happens and that hits our front doors? Are we ready for that? I can't imagine this like it not. So then at the end of the day, this first point is very simple. Believers are blessed in our suffering and therefore, suffering is a pathway to glory. The point is clear that when we, when we have zeal for good, when we have zeal for proper worship, when we have zeal for defending our faith, and when we have zeal for respect and gentleness with those who disagree with us and, 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 and cause us to suffer, we will be immeasurably blessed in the end. The big truth is very simple. You will have two choices in life. You will either suffer for good or you will suffer for evil. That's what it says there in verse 17. And Peter says it's way better to suffer for good than it is for evil. Because to suffer for evil is an eternal consequence that is unredeemable. And when you die and you have lived your life suffering for evil, you, there is nothing else. But when a, when a Christian suffers temporarily in this world for good, oh, there's nothing but eternal blessing from that. Nothing but eternal blessing from that. But there's a greater reason. And this is when we move into our second here. A greater reason here why the Christian can and should have hope that they can maintain their zealousness, their zeal for the Lord. And it is this, our path is the same path of Christ, and Christ's suffering will result in the full and final triumph of righteousness over unrighteousness. That's what he says there in verses eight, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered for righteousness sake. This is like Christianity 101. This is gospel 101. He suffered once, it says, for sins. In other words, his sacrifice, his suffering is not like our suffering. We will suffer perpetually for our own sin. 
But he suffered once, the innocent, for the, for, the, for the not innocent, for the righteous, for the unrighteous. He suffered one time so that he could be a perfect substitute. Propitiation is the big fancy word there. The, the perfect substitute for us, for all time, for the penalty, to pay for the penalty of my sin and for your sin, that we might be brought to God. So your zeal is more than just you doing something like attending to worship and defending in faith. Yes. But that's only possible if you are united to Christ. It's only possible if I'm united to Christ. The purpose of Christ's work is to glorify God and to bring a redeemed people into the communion with God through the once and all, once for all sin atoning work of Jesus. This people will never be put to shame, the Bible tells us, and, it's, and nor will they ever be harmed by the evil intentions of this world because they are beneficiaries of Christ's suffering. Our communion is sure and it's eternal. And this is and this is all because what happens or what is affected by Jesus' death and what it says being made alive in the spirit. His death was a righteous death. Why? Because he was a righteous man where you and I are not righteous. And he substitutes his righteousness for us, the great exchange we call it, in, in, so, they, so that we might be saved. See, his righteous life was pleasing to the Father. He did what our forefather, Adam, did not do. Please the Father please God. And he's made alive because of that righteousness by the Spirit, and he overcomes unrighteousness. Of course, this is all pointing to his death and resurrection. And how does all of that vindicate us? How does all that vindicate us? Why is that such an important part of our zeal? Because our vindication in Jesus comes, in two, comes on two sides of the coin. And it says it here in this text. Number one, it judges and condemns those who, who don't submit or believe in God. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Just, just read it with me, okay? He went to and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited for them in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In other words, Jesus dies... And in his death and resurrection, it is a message to the world that the world has failed. Sin is done. Death is defeated. Now, there's a lot of ways when people look at this text, and it's a very complicated text here in terms of he went into the, uh, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. There's really a couple ways in which people, Reformed folk at least, deal with this text. And there was actually quite a bit of hated debate among Reformed and Protestant, like Luther and Calvin did not see eye to eye on this. And actually the Puritans and Calvin did not see eye to eye on this. And so there's a lot of debate about what this text means. But I'm going to give you the, the, the cliff notes of this. Number one, this is where Calvin primarily was, is Christ by the Holy Spirit preached through Noah to the people before the flood. So in other words, what this is saying is that the Holy Spirit was there with Noah and that now Christ has died and is resurrected. That then is the Spirit was, was, was confirming all that the Spirit was doing and trying to, 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 to those people back when Noah was saying, look, I'm building an ark and you can get on the ark. Okay, you don't want to get on the ark? Okay, you want to ridicule me? Great, fine. That, that Spirit was there present then and this is just confirming what the Spirit was revealing in Noah back then. Okay? The other side is that Christ, between his death and resurrection, meaning when he was in between death and resurrection, he actually did descend into hell. Again, lots of controversy about these kinds of things. And he announced his victory to those who died in the flood. Now, I want to say this. Reformed folks have believed this and believe this very passionately. 
In fact, uh, Justin, on his vacation, is reading a book about this right now. He and him have been sharing notes this week. Uh, yeah, he didn't get to do the vacation because I'm going to annoy him to death, right? Um, and so the reality is, where do we land on this? You know, I don't know that I've landed on real crystal clear on it, Beyonce. I don't know if I spent a lot enough time on it, but I know this. If, if, if some of the most stalwart, Bible-believing people in, in church history have disagreed on this, it, it can't be something that is of central importance to Christian orthodoxy. Meaning, I don't think it's going to change what the, what the gospel is. I think at the end of the day, the main point, if you look at the flow of Peter's teaching here, is, is clear. Just as Christ was vindicated in his suffering and death, so will all Christians be vindicated under the banner of his redeeming work on their behalf. He both judges the world for not believing, and he comforts the believer for believing. That's what this is about. That's what Peter wants us to see. They formerly did not obey when God was patient in the days of Noah. Noah's contemporaries did what all men and women have done down throughout the centuries. They reviled the things of God. They're no different than every other man, woman, and child who's done this without God's intervention in their life. They rejected his rule. All humanity has. They've rejected God's sovereign reign over their lives. Noah's contemporaries here represent that God gets the final word over their rebellion. Got it? Makes sense? It's as simple as that. So God judges those who don't believe, but he also provides and protects for those who are washed under the banner of God's grace. And it's really fantastic that we had a baptism on the same day we did this because we can see a visible demonstration. And by the way, that wasn't intentional. It just was like, hey, what works for you guys? And we scheduled it, right? It just so happens it's on this day. But guys, we need to recognize, as I said earlier, the sacrament of baptism is a really, really important part of the church's life. Because it represents that, there's, that, that, that we are being washed clean in Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the person and work of Jesus Christ, all for us. Peter is showing us a connection between the church in his day and the redeemed people of Noah's day. Believers are akin to Noah and his family because we are just like an embattled minority in the hostile world. So is the church today, an embattled minority in a hostile world. And so therefore, he makes this comparison with baptism. Baptism is both a judgment... If you don't think that's true, it's a judgment. What would the water do? It cleansed the earth. But what also did it do? If you were in the ark, it saved you. So that's what baptism does. It both judges and it cleanses. It, and, and it both judges and it saves. It, it helps us. Baptism is both a judgment for the unrighteous and a comfort for the righteous. The floodwaters had a twofold effect, as we just saw. So baptism corresponds to the water that is both the judgment of God towards rebellious mankind and salvation for those who stand in a good conscience, is what Peter says here. And, or that is, they stand in faith of what God has revealed. That's what baptism is. You, you don't, you're not scrubbing yourself clean, but God in his mercy gives you this mark and says, I'm, you're mine. And we stand in good conscience with that because we know we are his. See, baptism has no saving power itself. It, it doesn't wash us clean, per se. But when we read the Bible correctly, we see that God relates to mankind through these covenants we've talked about many times in this study. And each of these covenants comes with signs and seals. If you want a fuller theology of covenant theology, I'd be happy to dive into that later on. But we just see this, right? In the covenants of Adam and Noah, God gives a sign of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
in no way gives the sign of the rainbow or the seal of the rainbow. In the covenants of grace in Abraham, he gives, gives the sign of, of, uh, of circumcision. Even before that, the proto-euangelion, when God sends them out of the garden and he said, tell, gives Eve the promise that, he, that she'll have a seed one day who will crush the head of the serpent, that's a sign. And the seal was God providing covering for them as they go out into the wilderness, outside of the garden. All of those signs and seals point to the ultimate sign and seal of baptism and the Lord's Supper that we find in the New Covenant because of Jesus. They all point us to this fact that, these, that, that it condemns those who rejected God and it redeemed and helped and it stands to bring us, bringing the one redeemed people into a full communion with God. I wish I could spend, I could spend an hour talking about that, but I'm not going to. The best way I can sum this up is by one of my favorite professors in, at Southern Seminary, Tom Schreiner. His words on this, I think, are as simple and as clear as anything I've seen. Believers have no need to fear that evil will conquer them, for they share in the same destiny as their Lord, whose suffering has secured victory over all hostile powers. Let me say that again. Believers have no need to fear that evil will conquer them. I.e., that means we can be zealous for the Lord. For they share in the same destiny as their Lord, whose suffering has secured victory over all hostile powers. Go read the end of Romans 8 on your own this week. Reflect on it. That's what this is all about. Who can, whom shall I fear? Cliff Notes. Jesus is worthy of our fear and admiration. He's worthy of our zeal. So let's sum it up and finish. How do we hold on to our zeal for the Lord? One, we know that there is no suffering that we will face that exceeds the power and provision of God. Two, we know that our zeal for righteousness will reap eternal reward. Three, we know that our zeal is strengthened by our worship of Jesus. Four, we know that our zeal is vindicated by the person and work of Jesus. And last, we know that our zeal helps us to rest in God's promises that have been fulfilled in Christ. Let's rest in that this morning. With that said, let us pray and prepare for the Lord's table. God, help us this morning as we come to the table. May God's people feed like they've never fed before on the Lord's table. Be brought to a holy zeal, God, and, and be nourished by this as we move back out into the world, into the places you've called us to this week, God. Be gracious to us be glor and be glorified through us now. It's in Christ's name. Amen.